sheep. I think of her every time someone yawns. Because within 30 seconds I'm raising my hand to cover my own mouth. And that's how it always was with Emma. She found everything infectious. If one of her friends started crying, her eyes would well up almost instantly. While if she spotted someone laughing, she would begin to giggle, no matter whether or not she'd heard the joke that had prompted it all in the first place. I met her shortly after finishing university. She was a cousin of one of my flatmates, and almost straight away we fell into that loose, casual intimacy of new friends. Our early twenties felt like something of a fraught time. We had, at long last, been let loose on the world, and we were still to some extent finding our feet, though, of course, none of us would have admitted as much at the time. Among my friends and acquaintances, there seemed to be a fiercely competitive streak hidden beneath a show of nonchalance, as though we were all competing to see who would be the first to make a success of life, or else who among us might tot up the most wild and exciting new experiences. It was therefore something of a relief to find someone I could talk to, who understood what I was thinking, whose feelings so closely mirrored my own. In those days we used to chat for hours. I have to admit, there was something incomparably pleasing about spending time with someone who laughed at my jokes, who shared my little worries, got upset about the same small injustices, mainly focused on the new jobs and fantastic opportunities that only ever seemed to go to the most undeserving of people. We had so much in common. Emma got angry at the same things that made me annoyed, smiled at the same things that made me smile. We laughed together at the strange inflection of newsreaders, wrinkled our noses at the same time when a cat crossed our path. It was therefore not until many weeks later that I realised something was amiss. We were having a small house party when I overheard her talking to someone I hated. Toby possessed that unappealing blend of narcissism and chauvinism, and I couldn't bear his company. Yet there Emma was, nodding and laughing at every racist joke Toby made. Half an hour or so later, as I was refilling my drink in the kitchen, I saw her in tears as one of my housemates blubbed about her boyfriend troubles. At first I thought it was an act, her own awkward attempt to fit in by aping the people around her. But as I watched her over the next few days, I realised that no matter who she was near, strangers or old acquaintances, family or friends, children or the elderly, her emotions would always mirror their own. My housemates and I compared notes, and we soon came to the agreement that Emma suffered from an excess of empathy. It was enough for her to see someone in pain to start her moaning. We learned to take the longer routes home so as to make sure she didn't come in contact with the local homeless. We made sure to never turn on the news in her presence. After a while, I began to make excuses not to spend time with her. I'm ashamed to admit it but knowing about her condition only made me want to avoid her. It wasn't that I thought she was false. On the contrary, it was the fact that I knew her reactions were genuine that put me off. She was impossible to be around. We don't need friends who mirror us. 
We want people who can pull us out of our misery and despair, who can challenge us or invigorate us with something new. Plus, it was hard to shake off the connotations of desperation that seemed to surround her actions. And at times she reminded me of those kids at school who tried too hard to be liked and therefore found themselves automatically shunned by the more popular groups. Friends come and go when you're young. There's nothing unusual in that. I knew her for a matter of months before I found a new job and left my housemates to move north. Yet I'm writing this recollection now, some ten years later, not only because I feel guilty about how I turned away from her, but because even from such a distance, something about her reaction to the world continues to fascinate me. Most of us find it easy to turn our empathy off. We have to. We develop inhibitors to help us survive, to stop us getting caught up in other people's problems. Perhaps we're so used to the random cruelty, the murder, the war, the heartbreak, as well as the million other casual disappointments of daily life, that we naturally retreat from strong emotions to stop us becoming overwhelmed. We're largely selfish creatures. I'm not trying to justify this. I often wish it were otherwise. But the unkind truth is that most of the time we cannot bear to share one another's pain because our lives would become weighed down and then one heartbroken friend or glance at the headlines would be enough to make zombies of us all. The strangest thing was that Emma didn't appear to know she was doing it. She seemed to have no sense that her behaviour was unusual, that behind her back people spoke about her as though she suffered from a strange illness. As I said, we were in our early twenties, being self-absorbed seemed relatively normal. As far as I know, she considered herself to be no different to the rest of us. Yet as soon as I discovered her affliction, I came to think of her as hollow, as someone who needed other people's emotions to fill a gap inside of her. And though it was ridiculous, I couldn't help but worry that when she finally found herself alone, she would have no idea how exactly she was supposed to feel. Do you know where your self-destruct button is? Next week's five-minute story, Dodo, will be available from Tuesday at www.sammeekings.com.